This is Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth and guest co-host Sharon Crowley from the Ohm Center of Healing in St. Paul, Minnesota. And we are in studio live with Dr. Sarah Whitcomb, who is a licensed psychologist and directs the School of Psychology doctoral program at University of Massachusetts in Amherst. She was formerly a public school teacher in general, but also worked in special education and has a passion to create mentally healthy learning environments for children. And she also actually holds another title that's near and dear to my heart, as she was a resident assistant to me, an undergrad, as a sophomore, but that's actually how we became good friends. And I might say prepared her well for her current position as professor and director of clinical training at UMass Amherst. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Beth. It is so fun to be here. It's delightful to have you in studio, and it's so fun to see how your passion for working with children has um I got to witness your early roots of that in undergrad when we were in the School of Education together and to see how it's evolved, grown, and deepened um, over your these last 20-plus years. Yes. Thanks. Um, and Sharon, thanks for being here with us, as always. Yes, I'm very excited about this. It's, it's interesting um, because in the... And with what I do when I'm working with folks, I do actually have a few teachers and obviously I've got quite a few kids and I'm dying to get into some of these topics because it seems like things have really been shifting and changing in the last, you know, three, four years, <laughs> three years. Absolutely. Especially. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what have you seen? Sarah? First of all, like, how did you, how, what have, how did you come to, to this place in your life? Um, for our listeners, um, as you've explored what you're passionate about. And secondly, what what kind of shifts have you seen in the last three years? Sure. Um, I mean, boy, I could go way back. Um, Yeah, please. Go way back. We like it. Just a little bit, because I I think, you know, it's funny, our life work, it it starts early, right? Really, when you kind of think about um, when you are able to reflect back at, at, at it as an adult. And um, so when I was growing up, I went to this day camp and I was there from age five to 20. Wow. <laughs> and um, yeah, and it was, um, and I was kind of like an anxious little kid, introverted, but, you know, sociable and like to have a good time and a good laugh. And um, so there was just something really special about this camp. Like it was such a safe space for me. Um, and I think, you know, when I started, I remember being a five-year-old scared to death to go to camp away from my parents for the first time. Was, was, this, an over, was this overnight camp? No, it was just, just a day, day camp. camp. Oh, you mentioned, but it was like a full. You know, it was like the full day. And yeah, for like sure. Big deal it's and swimming lessons and all. Yeah. You know, all the stuff that goes with it. And um, and I remember after my first year, like once I got over the hump of like the hard thing going for the first time, then it just became like my second home. Um, and so I think there was a lot there in terms of um learning how to be learning how to be a kid that's like happy and healthy in a safe space mm-hmm. um, because it was a really safe environment for me. And then as I grew older and kind of became the camp counselor and all of that, 
being able to then kind of look and try to figure out how do you, what are the elements uh, um, around this place um, that are important and how do I foster that and what's my role in that as a camp counselor. Um, and I particularly developed a love for um, the younger kids and in particular, some of the vulnerable populations. And so I remember the, the camp directors would always put, you know, the kids that were a little more challenging into my group <laughs> because they knew that I would just like love them and, you know, figure it out. And, and um, anyway, so, you know, I hadn't really kind of like your floor this. sophomore year. Yeah, right? <laughs> no, my gosh, you were the best part of that experience in, in college. That um, was super fun. Anyway, but, continue. Uh, yeah, but like, you know, I, I don't think I even thought about this until right this minute, you know, as we were kind of thinking about this podcast, but that really was a transformative experience for me as a child. And I think kind of um, was what made me want to go into education as a, a young undergraduate. Um, and I was you know, interested in psychology and human behavior, but also teaching and education and creating kind of safe classroom environments for kids. Um, and then I got out into the world of teaching and I was like, talk about like the next hard thing. <laughs> yeah. Like going out and teaching for the first time. And everybody says your first year of teaching is the hardest. And sure enough, I, you know, went out there, um, I was out in Oregon, and I was teaching in um, a sixth, seventh, eighth grade structured learning program, like a substantially separate program for kids that had pretty significant learning challenges and emotional challenges. And, um, uh, and it was a unique population of kids that were, um, coming up from Mexico, there was a Ukrainian population. So it was like a lot of kids that were different from the upbringing that I had. Um, and so I like went in there as the young 23 year old thinking like, oh, okay, here I am ready to like create the environment and teach the kids. And I was like, you know, it was like a big slap in the face. Did they teach you? Like, oh my gosh, how do I even think about, like I just didn't even know where to start. I just remember kind of like spinning those first well, for a long time and, and receiving some mentorship and ideas and slowly and surely like trying to get some pieces into place that that made those environments work. And so um, that's kind of like how I started and then bounced around quite a bit. And as you know, and as I moved back to the East Coast, I ended up teaching um, first grade and then kindergarten in a mm -hmm. general ed classroom. And so that was a very different dynamic and a different culture, different um, uh, uh, kind of community that I was working in. Um, and I remember there loving every moment of it and really loving how to like kind of think about how to help our kids get along with one another. And, hmm. you know, I, I, I think I've seen a meme somewhere about first grade where it's like the best year the kids are learning how to be together. They're learning to read. Teeth are falling out everywhere. Totally. <laughs> it's kind of a circus, but in the best possible way. My um, One of my boys refs first grade soccer, and he spends half the time tying shoes and putting on goalie <laughs> gloves. Like, it's not so much the fouls. Like, it's like, oh, you need help with your goalie glove. Oh, you need help with your creeping tied. I have so many pictures of him, like, bowing down and tying yes. these shoes. Yeah. I, so, would I would imagine, though, that this is 
like to get them at this point, you are creating that foundation. So it's so perfect to be able to get in there. Yeah. And then they, with, I'll stop, but for you, I could, I could see how they would connect with you and feel so safe. And yet you're also creating this foundation. It's just beautiful. Yeah. You know, I really, um, I, I really love that about the job, but also at the same time had so many of my own insecurities about right. uh, like being a good teacher and doing enough and, and like, am I, you know, am I doing all the right things? And, you know, I just had so many question marks. Um, and I also had some like, I guess frustration would be the word, but, you know, I would look at some of the kids in the class that I knew were a little bit more vulnerable than others, whether mm-hmm. it was like I could tell that they were sadder than others or they were maybe going to struggle with reading or whatever. And I couldn't quite figure out the systems of prevention that we had in place in our building. Like it would just be like, oh, well, we wait until they fail enough. And, and then, then refer them, them yeah. to education, right? And we'll fix that. Um, and that seemed very problematic to me. And so I, I just wanted to know, I, I was just like, I think we can do better. I think we can do better for our kids, but I didn't really quite know how. And so that's kind of how my, I found my way to school psychology, um, where, and particularly at the University of Oregon, where there was a, a real kind of focus on prevention science. And I wanted to know more. And that was kind of where I found my love for the field of school psychology and ended up um, where I am today, which is as a faculty member, um, kind of researching all all that I can and learn about healthy, safe environments for kids and what does it take to to get there? And what's our role as an adult um, to help foster that? Yeah. And it's beautiful that your curiosity and your nature of reflection has kept you curious enough to continue to ask that question. Because even if we dovetail into like these last three years, there's this, I found like this edge between like safety and brave space, right? Because like sometimes safety overdone can be harmful in a different way. At least I've learned that as a parent. And um, sometimes you know, how do we make an environment that's both safe and allows bravery to happen? Like, you know, taking risks, we're learning because without risk, right, there is no growth, but too much risk causes us not to have the learning, we lose the learning. And so I think of it as like this dance of an infinity sign between like risk, growth and safety that we're 100%, yeah. always trying to balance. And it seems like you have really taken that deep dive with both like the current book you wrote, which is called Bolstering Student Resilience, Creating the Classroom with Consistency, Connection and Compassion that you co-authored with um, another faculty, right? Yep. Uh, actually, he was um, in my cohort as in graduate school at University of Oregon and now works for American Institute for Research. And yep. tell us his name again. Jason Harlecker. Great. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Back to you. Yeah. No, I think you hit it. I mean, that idea that um, I think, and particularly maybe now in these last few years more than ever, um, we're starting to pay a a little bit more attention 
to what you're saying about that that dance. And it is an intricate dance of creating kind of safe and predictable environments for kids, but not creating environments that um, sort of reinforce anxious or, or avoidant behavior, right? Yeah. And so um, helping kids to tolerate a low level of stress, helping kids to um, be emboldened or, or, or brave enough to take some of those risks um, with with the right scaffolding, right? Like all of that, I think, is fairly nuanced. And when I think about, you know, teaching, we don't really prepare educators to to know how to like do that dance. Like that's a, I think it takes time and and, and inner work, yeah, and, and a lot of inner work, mm-hmm. right? That's you know something that I think has come up loud and clear in the last three years is yes, we have a mental health crisis on our hands, particularly with our children, and we have teachers that are like walking out the door due to burnout, stress. Right. And um, a lot of the good ones are, are really trying the, to hang on, yes. but it, they're they're doing a lot of hard work. Yeah, right? and they're kind of yeah. it all. And so, yes. I and I have the sense that you you're working with both the ideas about the the teachers and the kids and the whole system. And I can't wait to dive into that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's exactly it. Like that's where some of my passions have been is is um, you know, I don't I don't see myself as kind of some of the traditional researchers that like have one focus of like, you know, reducing childhood anxiety and focusing only on the child. Like I just see this as such a ecological kind of approach that we really have to look at kids but look at the adults in their world and look at the environment in which they're growing and all of the different kind of systems and factors that play a role in their health and well being. And um and as you said, seeing educators, it's kind of stuck in the middle of all of this. Um it, it's you know it's challenging to figure out the right thing to do to support them because it's, you know, I have a lot of teacher friends that are like, if you give me one more workshop on self-care, I am like going to walk right out the door because I think it's, sure, of course it's about self-care, but it's also building systems that enable folks to do, as you're saying about the inner work, like giving people space and time to do self-care. I mean, like if you're in a system that doesn't allow self-care, you can tell people to do self-care until the cows come home. But if their day is planned back to back to back to back and they don't have the right support to support that student that is acting in a certain way. Like I remember when we were in the School of Education together in undergrad, Mm -hmm. they would often say, like, it's not the first level of behavior you're seeing. That's secondary. And Mm -hmm. that has stuck with me. Like it's helped me in so many realms, right? Mm -hmm. It's what's the behavior before that? So if a kid is showing up and falling asleep in class, that's Mm -hmm. the secondary behavior. The primary cause might be that the kid doesn't have a bed or the parents are working the night shift and the kid is responsible for getting his siblings to sleep, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're seeing often secondary behaviors. And for me, I always have to remember that any kind of attention is positive attention to a kid, even if it's negative attention. And so how do we interrupt that cycle so that we can start to love them in their full brilliance? Exactly. And exactly. That, yeah. Oh, so many places to go. Okay. 
We're going to um, continue the conversation as we return for our next segment. And um, we are in studio with guest co-host Sharon Crowley from the Ohm Center of Healing. And we have Dr. Sarah Whitcomb from UMass Amherst, who is asking big, bold, beautiful questions to support brilliant teachers and brilliant children being in the best kind of learning environment and relationship they can be in on Exploring Sovereignty. I'm Elizabeth Sullivan, owner of Soma Soul Sovereignty. I teach people to transform and heal their bodies, minds, and spirits and manifest higher consciousness. My hope with Soma Soul Sovereignty is that you open up to the power to heal yourself. We believe the power to heal is within each of us. It supports us coming home to ourselves and our authenticity. The alchemy of Soma Yoga, Ayurveda, energy medicine, and multidimensional healing is a synergistic approach that supports this self-healing state within and around us. It is filled with common sense and a deep understanding of the beauty for life and consciousness. It reminds us that our true divine nature is light aligned with love, and when we orientate toward it, much releases, heals, and transforms. Experience the power and freedom within and ways to support your body, mind, and spirit being unified. Soma Soul Sovereignty, awaken to your light within. For more information, visit elizabethsullivan.love or somasoulsovereignty.com. That's somasoulsovereignty.com. At the School for Higher Consciousness, we are committed to raising the level of consciousness on the planet by educating and empowering people to grow, evolve, and live well. The School for Higher Consciousness is dedicated to supporting people through this critical time on the planet. Our classes provide a path that deeply connects you to your inner power and higher levels of consciousness. At the School for Higher Consciousness, we inspire, teach, and empower people to develop the skills and practices needed to energetically heal, grow, and connect more fully to their life purpose. The School for Higher Consciousness is building a global community grounded in the power of collaboration, the spirit of unity, consciousness, and the joy of human connection to help usher in a new model for a new era. Our programs include the Energetic Healing Program, Conscious Leadership Transforms, The Physical Alchemist, and much more. They are rooted in wisdom and designed to support your continued growth and transformation. This is Elizabeth from Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth, and I hope you register and learn more at schoolforhigherconsciousness.com. That's schoolforhigherconsciousness.com. Does your child struggle with sensory issues? Do they fight getting dressed in the morning, or are they anxious to go to school? Are they easily overwhelmed and overstimulated by lights and sounds? At Whole Family Chiropractic, we love helping parents understand why their child is struggling, and more importantly, how to help. We use safe, gentle, and effective neurologically-based chiropractic to help your child's brain feel calm, safe, and organized. For more info, visit sensoryhelpmn.com. That's sensoryhelpmn.com. I'm the host of Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth and thrilled to share my upcoming Soma Healing Experience, The Physical Alchemist, held at St. Paul's Ohm Center of Healing from now through January of 2024. Discover pathways to embody your divine nature within a sacred space and explore grounding high-frequency energy to balance the body, mind, and soul. I'm dedicated to guiding you towards sovereignty and self-healing. Register by September 10th at elizabethsullivan.love or somasoulsovereignty.com. Would you like to create more freedom in your life? Developing higher consciousness and sovereignty is the currency for that freedom. Transformation expert Nancy Claremont Cart with The Joy Effect empowers leaders to transform their lives and impact using conscious leadership principles. Nancy is offering a transformational eight-week group coaching program 
Conscious Leadership Transforms, starting October 24th to help leaders create more joy, abundance, and freedom. Register now at nancyclaremontcar.com. Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth and guest co-host Sharon Crowley from the Ohm Center of Healing in St. Paul, Minnesota. And we are in studio today with Dr. Sarah Whitcomb from UMass Amherst, who has taken um, her curiosities around how we can create the best learning environment for teachers and students to be in well relationship with one another so that their curiosities and their learning can really thrive instead of survive. And um, I think one of the things uh, I've witnessed about you over the years uh, in your work is that you really try to simplify things so that they're attainable. And um, in your most recent work and book, Bolstering Student Resilience, Creating a Classroom with Consistency, Connection, and Compassion, you really try to, like, Let's simplify the, the field here, especially after such a complex last three years with education and trying to keep children in school or in learning environments that are supportive and helping them thrive. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I know, you know, you mentioned in segment one, like if my teacher friends here, self-care, self-care one more time, they're going to like... <laughs> run out of the building. So, um, and while that's important and while that requires inner work, like you're trying to create, uh, I think a formula that people can dance more dynamically with given the various environments that teachers and students find themselves in, in 2023 and beyond. Sure. Yeah. So I, you know, I think one of the things, um, before I even get into some of the specific kind of distilled messages that are in that book is to kind of go back, um, to, to when I did go back and do some doctoral work at the University of Oregon. And I think this is important because I think, it, um, some of what I was learning about, um, and some of the, um, confusion I was experiencing yeah. as a learner during that time, I see reflected in schools today. Um, and so let me say a little bit more about that. You know, I, I was working with an advisor who was really focused on resiliency and student resiliency. And, and in particular, he had some expertise in um, strategies to prevent anxiety and depression in youth. Mm. Um, and so a lot of our work you know, my focus doctoral work was in this kind of realm. And, and at that point, the collaborative for academic and social emotional learning was kind of taking off. And this idea of SEL in schools or social and emotional learning in schools was was really kind of gaining traction. So we spent a lot of time focused on um, strategies we can be explicitly teaching students to help them build self-awareness skills and empathy and um, relationship skills and things like that. And I have a question about that um, for a moment, like the idea of resilience, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned that the person, the person you were working with at University of Oregon, it's like resilience around anxiety and depression, though that 
those three ingredients seem to go together often. Like if someone's struggling with anxiety or struggling with depression, and I, and I know this from my own experience, both personally and also working with clients, um, resilience often will be kind of the gift of that experience. Is like, mm-hmm. and but it's like, I, how would you define resilience for people listening? And do you find that resilience, anxiety, and depression sometimes are a trifactor, or do you find? Is there a way to get resilience without having to have anxiety or depression? Um, Yes. I mean, I think the most generic definition of resilience is um, bouncing back from adverse circumstances, like having the ability to bounce back. Right. And um, and we're learning a lot about children that grow up um, with adverse circumstances and um, and what are kind of those protective factors? You know, we think about risk and protective factors and what are some of those protective factors that help um, buffer some of the risk or that help them kind of bounce back mm-hmm. um, from those adverse circumstances. And, um, and so, so I think that's sort of the generic term of resilience. Yeah, and when you I like think that. About it and, yeah, in terms of... Um, anxiety and depression it's a good question it's it's i see how it fits in there too Mm -hmm. um and it and it's about how do you again particularly when i'm thinking about anxiety for example how do you learn to um tolerate stress how do you learn to um some of the skills involved in starting to recognize when your body feels stressed or anxious um, the self-awareness that you're building in terms of building some emotion vocabulary to recognize that I feel uncomfortable right now. Why do I feel uncomfortable right now? Teaching kids about the what are the, some of the thoughts that are running through your head right now, right now when you feel that in your body, mm-hmm. right? All of those skills that we try to teach in self-awareness and in coping enable somebody to bounce back, you know, mm-hmm. enable somebody to be resilient. Um, and so I think this idea of like teaching resilience comes out of that logic in a way. Um, I also know that there's, you know, some resistance to the word resilient right now too, when we think about, you know, the, the last three years that where we've experienced um, some overt racism and not some lots of overt racism and, and, and um, oppressive experiences for people and, and they're saying, oh, we don't want to have to bounce back anymore. We've got right. to change the system. We've got to change the system to, to empower us and scaffold and create healthy. It kind of comes back to the healthy environments piece. And so yeah, it's like you want you want to, you want, instead of being the goldfish in the dirty water, you want the goldfish in the clean water and yeah. not have like, let's yes. get rid of the Let's empty the entire bowl out and yes. start over. Give the yes. goldfish some clean water while we make this new pond. Exactly. And that's such a great, a great analogy for that because, and, and that kind of goes back to what I was learning. So I was learning all this stuff with my um, advisor, Dr. Ken Merrill, um, And then I was, the University of Oregon was also a place that was really focused on positive behavioral supports in classrooms, which really stems from um, the developmental 
disabilities literature where we used to just ex- exclude kids from educational experiences and punish them. So horrible. And it was like horrible, a horrific treatment, right? And so there was a lot of really good things happening around how do we positively support, teach and support socially um, important and valued and supported behaviors um, in classroom environments. And and it was, and to me, it was sort of like the, um, like it was such an aha moment of like, oh yes, this is what I mean about arranging the environment so that kids are able to access their learning or their, their building their self-awareness or whatever it is that we're working on. Um, and so there is this like environmental piece and this inner work that needs to be happening in tandem. And what I found um, over time is that, you know, we in academia, we like really mess this up all the time where we study our one thing. Like I'm a school climate person. I'm a social emotional learning person. I'm a positive behavior support person. And I'm going to like write a fancy new book and I'm going to (laughs) like get it all out there and schools are going to attach to it. And then they get confused because they're like, well, we've got five different programs that we're trying to implement all at once. And there's really some intersection that needs to happen. Like we, we do a good job of helping people fragment the work. And so I think my latest goal in the, in this current book that we wrote was about like, how do we distill all of that, the importance of environment and inner work and support teachers? <laughs> as they, you know, with like some simple skills so that they can kind of do that work and and create these like, you know, beautiful classroom environments with with some ease and it doesn't feel like 17 things they're trying to do at once. And so I'm gonna jump in with a question. Um, Again, kind of coming from a base perspective as a parent that was you know, trying to navigate a system, having no idea how teachers and, and honestly not really thinking about it at the time. I have a 20 year old now, so it was a while back, but um, never giving a whole lot of thought as to how the teachers were trained to deal with this, how they were dealing with it um, and not even again, not being aware enough. And so, so I'm curious about things that you have seen um, where a child goes from not being self-aware to popping through to the awareness and how that uh, presents itself, you know, mm-hmm. and then have you been able to study it long-term? I mean, I assume it's something that's been around for a while, but have you been able to see how incorporating that in, especially now with what the kids are going through, um, are you able to kind of look back with a past lens and see it? Yeah. um, Yes. And I think kind of in different ways, but, you know, I think to kind of boil it down to some skills, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the things that we try to teach kids in building self-awareness, right? Like, I think part of it is, is just that fundamental piece of teaching kids to recognize their own emotions. And I think about this for myself, right? Because it wasn't until much later that I really was able to recognize what I was feeling, 
because I think I was an anxious person. So I was just like functioning on anxiety all the time. And I was an anxious doer. So I would just like go do, 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 do. And then finally kind of like had some points in my life that really made me like stop and recheck and everything. And I I think it's sort of a later life thing that we all go through where we look back and think, oh my gosh. And that, I mean, so that's what I'm saying is even as a parent, I wasn't even that self-aware. Yes. Yes. And so, yeah. And I, but I do think that we can teach kids earlier. Um, I think there's, is a developmental like trajectory here in, in sort of the nuance with which you understand yourself. But I think on a very basic level, helping kids to recognize the difference between a uh, a comfortable and an uncomfortable emotion Mm. is step one. And step two is like, name that emotion, right? Like I am feeling happy. I am feeling sad. Those are very basic emotion words. But what we've learned from the literature is that the more emotion words kids start to build into their vocabulary, the better their social outcomes are later. So if I learn how to like, so part of what we've been trying to help um, in in a curriculum that we developed is like helping kindergarten and first grade kids see a picture. What does that picture look like? How do you think that person's body is feeling? What emotion might they be feeling? What are some other words for that emotion? So I'm learning sort of like angry, mad, frustrated, right? Like I'm learning to kind of differentiate different emotions and different intensities of emotions so that um, they can start to build a little bit of a self-awareness there. And I think for adults, adults need those lessons. (laughs) Absolutely. So like for us to be able to model that for kids or notice it in kids and validate, right? Like, boy, I see you're angry right now. And the environmental piece might be setting a limit on it. Like, I see you're angry, and the answer is still no. (laughs) You've got to be savvy and learn how to do, like, the both, like, validate and... And here's a boundary that's going to support your safety and well-being, and you can still be angry about it. Exactly. But Yeah, and as with kids, when you empower them with their self-awareness, it's probably a bit of a double-edged sword. Uh, yes, yes. Because then you get kids who are very savvy, right? Or, and I think I do see that. You know, it's funny. It, it's like, yes, our kids are struggling right now, but also there's certain populations of kids that have like had been to therapy and they've got all the therapeutic language and they're gonna like give it right back to you that way. But, um, but I I think that's a good thing. Like helping kids recognize early how they're feeling, what they're thinking and how their feelings and what they're thinking and how they interact with others. Yeah. I would think their impact on others. Help them be a little bit more compassionate, compassionate and have some empathy in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have even been able to connect with before. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I'll, I'll say that, you know, that the core of your work, you're really boiling down here is that, concept of self-awareness, both for kids, Mm -hmm. for teachers, for parents, um, and helping that develop much earlier in children's lives so that they can build that awareness around their emotions, their thoughts, and their behaviors. And we see that 
we call it cycle time in yoga therapy is like, can you get quicker on your cycle time? Like where yeah. is the thought informing the emotion, informing the feeling, informing the action? And how do you interrupt okay. it earlier and become more skillful? Where can people who are listening in this community who may want to explore this pathway of getting free find um, more about you? Sure. So, um, on the UMass website and under school psychology, you can um, find more about me and my research team. We call it the SMILE team, which is supporting mental health and learning environments, um, but also a larger statewide project um, called the Birch Project, Behavioral Health Integrated Resources for Children, kind of like a crazy name, but a good acronym. Um, the Birch Project, so birchproject.org um, is another place where you can find some of where we're trying to do that integration of the inner work with the systems work at a larger level. So we're working not only in classrooms, but in districts and and at the state level at this point. Awesome. And that's Dr. Sarah Whitcomb, S-A-R-A, no H, and then Whitcomb, W-H-I-T-C-O-M-B, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay, well, we're going to continue this exploration around sovereignty and pathways of getting yourself free and within the educational systems that are in an ever-evolving state (laughs) post-2020. And we'll return with Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth and guest co-host Sharon Crowley and Dr. Sarah Whitcomb from UMass Amherst. I'm Elizabeth Sullivan, owner of Soma Soul Sovereignty. I teach people to transform and heal their bodies, minds, and spirits and manifest higher consciousness. My hope with Soma Soul Sovereignty is that you open up to the power to heal yourself. We believe the power to heal is within each of us. It supports us coming home to ourselves and our authenticity. The alchemy of Soma Yoga, Ayurveda, energy medicine, and multidimensional healing is a synergistic approach that supports this self-healing state within and around us. It is filled with common sense and a deep understanding of the beauty for life and consciousness. It reminds us that our true divine nature is light aligned with love, and when we orientate toward it, much releases, heals, and transforms. Experience the power and freedom within and ways to support your body, mind, and spirit being unified. Soma Soul Sovereignty, awaken to your light within. For more information, visit elizabethsullivan.love or somasoulsovereignty.com. That's somasoulsovereignty.com. Would you like to create more freedom in your life? Developing higher consciousness and sovereignty is the currency for that freedom. Transformation expert Nancy Claremont Cart with the Joy Effect empowers leaders to transform their lives and impact using conscious leadership principles. Nancy is offering a transformational eight-week group coaching program, Conscious Leadership Transforms, starting October 24th to help leaders create more joy, abundance, and freedom. Register now at nancyclaremontcar.com. Does your child struggle with sensory issues? Do they fight getting dressed in the morning, or are they anxious to go to school? Are they easily overwhelmed and overstimulated by lights and sounds? At Whole Family Chiropractic, we love helping parents understand why their child is struggling, and more importantly, how to help. We use safe, gentle, and effective neurologically-based chiropractic to help your child's brain feel calm, safe, and organized. For more info, visit sensoryhelpmn.com. That's sensoryhelpmn.com. At the School for Higher Consciousness, we are committed to raising the level of consciousness on the planet by educating and empowering people to grow, evolve, and live well. 
The School for Higher Consciousness is dedicated to supporting people through this critical time on the planet. Our classes provide a path that deeply connects you to your inner power and higher levels of consciousness. At the School for Higher Consciousness, we inspire, teach, and empower people to develop the skills and practices needed to energetically heal, grow, and connect more fully to their life purpose. The School for Higher Consciousness is building a global community grounded in the power of collaboration, the spirit of unity, consciousness, and the joy of human connection to help usher in a new model for a new era. Our programs include the Energetic Healing Program, Conscious Leadership Transforms, The Physical Alchemist, and much more. They are rooted in wisdom and designed to support your continued growth and transformation. This is Elizabeth from Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth, and I hope you register and learn more at schoolforhigherconsciousness.com. That's schoolforhigherconsciousness.com. I'm the host of Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth and thrilled to share my upcoming Soma Healing Experience, The Physical Alchemist, held at St. Paul's Ohm Center of Healing from now through January of 2024. Discover pathways to embody your divine nature within a sacred space and explore grounding high-frequency energy to balance the body, mind, and soul. I'm dedicated to guiding you towards sovereignty and self-healing. Register by September 10th at elizabethsullivan.love or somasoulsovereignty.com. This is Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth and guest co-host Sharon Crowley, and we're in studio with Dr. Sarah Whitcomb from UMass Amherst, and she is the professor and director of clinical training there, but always asking big, bold, beautiful questions around how we can make optimal learning environments for all participating teachers and students and families. And um, you mentioned in the last segment, Sarah, um, that, you know, you had moments where, like, you realized that anxiety pattern of doing that you thought was like a normal baseline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you kind of woke up and you were like, wait a minute, maybe this isn't normal. Can you share a little bit of your pathway of getting free of that? Because I think a lot of us can resonate with that. Like, we, in our current climate, or past current climate, I think a lot of things are shifting doing gets rewarded, especially within an educational system. Like the more you do, the more you A, the more you, yeah. So can you tell us like your own pathway of getting free from that pattern and and what that looked like for you? Sure. I, um, yeah, I think we all have these wake up calls and our, or hopefully in some ways, I mean, they're painful, right. And oftentimes it's loss or grief or whatever. Um, and I had, as you said, I kind of lived this life and I think my family context reinforced this and everywhere I was reinforced the life of like being the doer and getting accomplished. And, and, um, and I can't say that I'm not still there because I like have to check <laughs> myself every day. Right. Like, Oh my gosh, Me this does not matter. Right. Like, right. But um, I but I definitely hit a point and it's kind of ironic, right? Because I was writing my dissertation on helping young children build self-awareness and resilience. And <laughs> I was like killing myself in the process, right? And so um, kind of talk about like my own self-awareness was like not in check. Well, and, we often study what we need to learn ourselves. Yeah, right? We, <laughs> all, do, yeah. we all do the work to work out our own stuff. And yeah. that clearly 100% was my situation. <laughs> and um, 
So I was, you know, uh, uh, I had two young kids. I had just moved across the country. I was writing a dissertation. I was um, commuting from, you know, Wilbraham to Boston, which is like an almost two hour commute every day. Like it was absolute insanity. And I was always of the mindset that you can, you can do anything if you just like, like I can push do hard enough. That's if I push hard enough, I'll, it's fine. Cause I'd always been reinforced by that. Well, clearly in that scenario, my body a hundred percent broke down and I, um, <laughs> just, st- <laughs> I started like having all sorts of like, you know, crazy physical symptoms and like lot confused about it and, and, and anxious and maybe a little depressed. And, you know, I, I, so I went to every doctor known to man, you know, it was like one of those situations where like, oh, but I just need to find the answer and, you know, find I just the, need the to answer. finish this and it can't be <laughs> my life style that's informing what no. is happening. <laughs> I finally went to an integrative doctor who was so great. He like took one look at my blood work. I was like, listen, you live a high octane life. That's what he said. <laughs> a high octane life. And basically like you are in like full on adrenal fatigue. Like something's got to change in your life. Hmm. Um, and so, and it was very eye opening for me because I was, I was exhausted. Like I, I, I couldn't be the parent I wanted to be, or, you know, I was uh, getting started with a new faculty position mm-hmm. and I just really had to reset a lot of things and, um, and, and work through therapy to like build my own self-awareness and like give myself some grace to like let go of the doing and kind of be a little bit more present in the moment and kind of achieve, you know, that, that feeling of freedom as you kind of talk about and and it worked boy it worked because I just feel like as I said I'm not good at it don't get me wrong but but I've definitely had um a much healthier and happier existence since that time because I can live in the moment a little bit more yeah and you've started to develop a new I mean neural pathways for that but also just pathways like oh I see myself going into this old habit this old pattern At least this is what happens for me, and I can interrupt my cycle sooner. Yes. Like, oh, here are some signs and symptoms that, like, I might, I'm not full blown in that pattern, but I'm starting to edge into that pattern. I call them like yes. yellow lights before, like, the full on green light. Like, exactly. Exactly. Or red light. Like, yeah. everything comes crashing to a halt. Yeah. 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 Stop. <laughs> lights but, are out. Yeah, lights, lights are, are out. I definitely, I definitely, I definitely have learned to listen to the whispers instead of the full on neon signs that I used to need like you know that was a full like neon sign for you of like adrenal fatigue and mental emotional physical like crash of like this is not a sustainable lifestyle sustainable pace and the joy was missing from it the joy was missing and so so for me like building the self-awareness to like you said interrupt the cycle Mm -hmm. be present and experience joy Mm -hmm. um and um, also be able to do the hard thing. So like I said, you know, as an, if you're feeling anxiety, most people that feel a little anxiety either avoid the hard thing or they overcompensate and overdo. And so like, how do you come to that, like, healthy, courageous point of like addressing and tolerating without, you know, going one way or the other? And um, so I think, I think that was a lot of learning that I did personally, 
but has helped this work also and has helped me connect back with like the teachers that I work with because like they're in it. They are in it. They are living kind of a, in some ways an unsustainable pace. And so how do we create environments for teachers that are a little bit more sustainable and healthy so that then they can do the work to help support kids as they do this learning? Well, and are, are there any efforts out there to try to uh, get parents on board <laughs> with what the poor teachers are really having to go through? I think, you know, when I was growing up, the the teachers kind of had the last say and parents acquiesced to whatever the teacher was going to say. And I think that that's shifted so tremendously that the teachers now end up getting kind of caught in the middle. Yeah. Um, yeah. As my husband, who is a school administrator, would say, sometimes we call them the the, instead of helicopter parents, they're the snowplow parents <laughs> <laughs> all the way for their kids yes. to make sure that it's a smooth ride. You bet. You bet. Um, and and I like to use him as an example because I think he's done a he has that level of awareness and he's done a nice job of um, having some hard conversations with parents to do some of that teaching. And mm -hmm. but it only happens in relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can't just relationships everything relationship is everything because you can't just like put put the kibosh on the on the snowplow parenting if that's what's working for people but like right. to be able to have a challenging conversation in the context of a caring and thoughtful and you know positive relationship is is the way it's going to work and so um yeah so you talk about even those three c's does that come into play for him yeah, so I think um, for him and, and just kind of in general in education, kind of to your question, Sharon, too, I think there are ways that um, folks are starting to try out some strategies and like systemic strategies. So I think about um, I have a colleague here at UMass who's really interested in the parent communication piece. And so um, she has done a study and it's like this amazing intervention where basically they um, identify kids that are having some challenging behaviors and they connect with the parent and they say, hey, this is the intervention we want to do. We want you to um, uh, we we are going to have your teacher send you some communication on a weekly basis twice a week. How do you want it? Email, text, phone. Okay. So however the parents want the communication, the teacher communicates and the teacher's only allowed to provide positive feedback about the child. Hmm. So it's like spotting strengths within the child, hmm. mm -hmm. not even paying attention to what we're dealing with in terms of the challenging behavior. So the, the intervention isn't directly mm -hmm targeted at the kid at all. It's really just in this communication between teacher and parent. And what they have found is major reductions in challenging behaviors in the classroom. Really? Isn't that interesting? And it's, <laughs> it's brilliant because it's using yeah. like consistency. It's twice a week. It's yep. using yep. connection. It's like, yep. how do you want to connect? We need to connect because this is happening. And it's also using compassion because it's like, I see you. I see the possibility. Yep. I see the full potential of your kid. Yep. We want, you, like parents, honestly, like you want to know when your kid's struggling, but if that behavior is the only thing you talk about, it just amplifies that, not to ignore it, but. Yeah. 
100%. And so that was kind of like the focus of our book is we've tried to distill the nuggets of consistency, connection, and compassion across almost everything we think about when we think about creating healthy environments for kids. And so it's that idea of creating some predictability in the environment, but also making sure that we intentionally connect with kids on a daily basis. Like, so it's not like off the cuff kind of thing, but like we are intentionally greeting them at the door or we are intentionally asking about their weekend, um, not contingent on anything else going on and during the day. And then the, the compassion piece is, is just, as you said, like recognizing that people are in different spaces and, co- and coming from different places and, and being um, cognizant of that. I think, yeah, I think often if I can remind myself when I'm in a difficult situation that that person and that I am doing the best I can in this moment. Um, and sometimes when I'm in confronted with s- someone who's more challenging for me, if I can translate that into this person is saying, help me, help me, help me. Yes. It helps shift my own like response to one Absolutely. that usually causes me less cleanup. Not always. I mean, I still struggle with that. But I, th- I use that all the time, especially in an institution higher education. Yes. A lot of bureaucratic scenarios and challenging department meetings and all of that is like, okay, we're all working with the best with of what we have right now, yep. and, and and it just kind of changes the mindset when you go in with that perspective. And it also helps people, I think, and myself included, rise to a higher level of, like, if I can imagine that person at their best, and they can imagine me at my best, Mm -hmm. it's like everyone rises versus like, if I always assume Sarah's going to be this way, then I'm probably always going to get Sarah this way. Yes. Or Elizabeth. And I, yeah, I do think that you're absolutely right, that it starts with Mm self-awareness. Yeah. So to get get them early on with the self-awareness is just such an exciting concept. So kudos to you. And so, so give give our listeners a call to action, like, you know, something that they can play with. Um, I know you have some simple things that parents. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think about this for, for teachers. I think about this for parents. Um, and, and it really works for kids of all ages. You know, one of the things that we really push for is, um, embedding, lessons of self-awareness in almost everything we do or learn. And so for a kid, if I'm a parent reading to them at night, reading a book at night, it's about like pointing out, how do you think that character's feeling right now? Hmm. Right? It's just having the conversation about emotion and sort of like building that understanding of awareness of both someone in someone else, but also myself. How would you feel in that situation? Make some of those connections, right? And we can do that with you know, children's books like Wemberly Worried, and we can do that with <laughs> like Romeo and Juliet or, you know, whatever right. it is that we're reading. Um, we can always kind of go to that place of like, ah, God, get in the shoes of that character. How, how do you think they're handling it right now? And um, I, I think that's a really simple way to do the teaching um, that everybody can really take part in. And it creates great versatility. And so we can find more about Dr. Sarah Whitcomb and all the beautiful work you're doing in the world at birchproject.org or UMass Amherst. And thank you so much for being on with us today on Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth and guest co-host Sharon Crowley. Thank you so much for having me. It's a blast. Thank you. Super fun. (laughs) 